clubhouse. You know, I should say up front that in my experience, doctors tend to be assholes. The reason they tend to be assholes is because they get to be. They're doctors. My point is, you don't get to be one anymore. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast. Tonight we're talking about episode three of The Undoing, Do No Harm. As of all episodes of The Undoing, this was written by David E. Kelly and directed by Suzanne Beer. How about you, Caroline? Do you do no harm? Do you subscribe to the Hippocratic Oath? Ooh, I try. I very much do, actually, because, uh, you know, I like to do what I want, but I definitely don't want to do harm to anybody. Who in this episode is the one that we should be warning to not do harm? Is it Grace? Is it Jonathan for getting involved with his patient? Which people don't seem to have as big a problem with as other than Stuart that maybe like people should. Like everyone seems to be getting over that maybe in light of the alleged murder, maybe the infidelity doesn't seem as big a deal. I think that's a good point. I think that's a relativity situation, right? Definitely it feels like, well, who cares that he slept with her? She's dead. <laughs> right. That's kind of the more pressing matter I mean, right now. I, that, I mean, you just <laughs> delivered that punchline like a Catskill comic from the 1950s. What does it matter? She's dead! <laughs> you know, those very Don Rickles I of you. I didn't want to tell you, but Don Rickles is my dad. <laughs> All right, Mrs. Maisel. So let's talk about tonight's episode. Episode one really set the table and introduced a lot of things like first episodes of shows always do. But we talked a lot in episode two about how much information they packed into the hour-long episode. Episode three didn't have as many reveals, but really moved the story along. I mean, we're into the criminal trial now. We've gone from the end of episode two where he shows up in the, you know, in the dawn at the summer house and now he's, you know, in a suit facing arraignment during this episode. So I think they're really moving the whole story along. I agree with you. There wasn't as many like dun 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 moments, but at the same time, it was actually moving swiftly. Like I'm yes. so surprised at how quickly for a mystery it's going. Like every single hour that we sit with it, we get so much information. But it, and and you know, and while it's going on, it doesn't feel like it's it's like a, a crushing amount of information. But when you sit, you sit back and you relax and you and I take notes. I mean, I have four like full my serial killer handwriting pages <laughs> worth of notes on this episode. You know, that's a lot of note taking while I'm watching the episode. That's how much information is here. There's great quotes I'm writing down. There's there's factual things. And the show, you know, when we talked to Michael Devine last week, who plays Detective O'Rourke, he made a mention about how impressed he was with the show's dedication to presenting a very realistic investigation and and procedure and it's it's not just a a, a highly dramatic or dramatized murder story that we're watching here there's so much in this episode that was very realistic or very close to realistic in in how Jonathan is getting processed and and all the nooks and crannies of the court system so much interesting stuff to to really kind of unpack and so I'm really excited to talk about this episode with you yeah if if previous episodes were really about the the what happened in the the mystery of it all. I feel like this one is like who is involved. This is so much more about the characters and kind of developing them a little bit more and trying to figure out relationships between different people. 
they kind of like like a game of Clue. They introduced all of the players and the possible weapons that they may be holding. <laughs> now I think we're going to have four episodes of learning how it unfolded, watching the trial play out in real time, and learning via flashback, real or imagined, what actually happened on that night in uh, in January. I'm so excited. I really love the suspense on this one. And, you know, speaking of relationships, Mike, we got a huge bomb dropped, like for most people, I think, who aren't, who maybe didn't, didn't, weren't on Team Caroline, that maybe this child was actually Jonathan's. And we actually find out that, yeah, the paternity tests are in. He is the father. I wrote in my notes, Jonathan is the father. I capitalized <laughs> is to be, give it the, my most Maury. I mean, you and I, I think, both felt pretty strongly that obviously it was going that way. We had the eyelash comment. All, all of the pieces seemed to fit. But to actually get that information drop and for Mendoza to use it like he's gaslighting Grace in this scene out at the summer house, right? Because the episode starts up pretty much right after her phone call. I mean, we even get to hear over here her phone call again that ended episode two. He's he's just ramping her up. I don't know if he is trying to get her to confess to something, to being complicit or being an accomplice, or if he's just trying to piss her off that so that she'll be cooperative with him. I agree with you because really, why would you come and say, "Oh, BT Dubs"? paternity test back most of the time that's that kind of thing she would have to go seek out that info she would have to go ask his lawyer she would have to go find out like it, it feels unlikely that the detective comes right over to you and is like hey want to know some stuff like you know like uh what right and i mean i mean hipaa aside otherwise i mean that has to there has to be a certain level of confidentiality like she's not the mother she's not the father of that baby i don't know that he should i don't know that he's legally able to be handing out paternity information That's like that really good point because yeah i mean she's not a player in this game in that way and she is you know decidedly chosen to stand on the sidelines in terms of like you know how she doesn't attend the arraignment hearing and she she's just really just kind of watching it from afar so it, it is odd but hey they've established that edgar kind of wants to have this little bit more it's antagonistic but also closer relationship with grace like going into the home to do the interview mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. sort of like being in her business a whole lot that i feel like this is all about trying to uncover something else for the paternity drop in my notes uh, I have, does he think that she's involved? Question mark, question mark, question mark. He's still grilling Grace. So he's going at her in a way that made me feel watching it, that he thinks that she is guilty of something. That is the vibe I was getting. Mm -hmm. And then he does the paternity drop. And it's it's just like a boxer in a ring, right? Just keeping your opponent, uh, you know, rocked back on their heels. And, you know, Grace does a, a good job a couple of different places we saw last week and, and again in this episode where she's able to lean forward again and defend herself and go at people. She wasn't great in this scene. I mean, she, she accepts the information like Grace always does. And she just kind of nods her head and she walks off down the beach kind of thing. We'll say uh, Mendoza and Roll work together, but it's really Mendoza is playing the bad cop in the good cop, in the good cop, bad cop routine that those two are doing. He is just keeping her rocked back on her heels. And she takes information in so stoically that it's hard to figure out what she knew and what she doesn't know or what she suspected or what is really a surprise to her. But you have to imagine actually hearing those words, whether legally or not legally, uh, you know, divulged to her had to sting a bit. Uh, and not only know? that, but also the visual that she's taking in right then of the NYPD just crawling like ants all over the beach house. 
you know, after having them, you know, come mm-hmm. and siege on top of the whole, you know, t- the home that they live in in the city, it just feels like, oh my God, like this was like kind of a safe place. She was kind of in this little secluded spot. And then now here they are again, like they're all just all in her business. Between taking in the visual and listening to that, it was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, imagine, imagine you have left, you have run away from Manhattan, crowded Manhattan to this empty, summer beach house in the winter right we learn that it's january when this is taking place now which is which is a great information drop because we have been talking about it being late fall early winter with the feeling of new york that they had set up but it's actually winter winter um we learned from the camera that the night of the murder was january 8th 2019 so this is like a week or so later that this episode takes over the course of that next week and so yeah so we're like middle of january by the end of this episode imagine in this like peaceful place one your your husband who maybe is guilty of murder you know covers your mouth in the pre-dawn light and tells you not to scream confesses his affair confesses the argument the sex the night she's murdered uh, says he's innocent then not too long later helicopters are showing up like the nypd helicopter whirlybird is touching down on your beach house property you know police cars are outside think about how traumatic a three-hour period this must have been for grace and for henry I mean, holy shit, Henry is witness to all of this. There's no hiding him from everything that's going on here. He's watching out his window. I, I would think it's surreal. Like, I, I just don't even think that you could really absorb what was happening. And it yeah. would just really feel like an out-of-body experience, you know? What do you think we're supposed to take away from Henry picking up his violin to practice during this? I mean, I wrote my notes. as the very first note I took. It was Henry really committed to his practice, <laughs> that he picks up his violin as his father's being frog-marched across the lawn out to a helicopter and police are crawling over his house dramatically it was fantastic to watch but are we supposed to take something away from this is henry too interested and too invested in this murder case because the next time we see him at his father's pad right we have a quick shot of jonathan showing up at rikers island i'm pretty sure what is supposed to be rikers island uh for processing we cut back to the morning at franklin's place and henry is watching the coverage of the of the murder investigation we we learned that the sculpting hammer which is the suspected murder weapon is missing from elena's shop that was the big information drop we got before grace enters and yells at henry to turn it off is henry too involved in this is he handling his father's arrest too well i have a couple of of concerns about this so one of the parts is that i actually took him playing the violin as the equivalent of someone turning up the radio you know, when something's happening and they just drown it all out. That's the only way that I was accepting the violin, really, was just like, let me just escape what's happening right now. When it came to everything going on at Franklin's house, I had a lot of question marks about how much both Franklin and Grace allow Henry to watch the news, to be like sitting at the table with an iPad seemed very anti-old school Franklin's house. You know, it seemed like the type of thing that where Franklin would be like, put it away. But clearly, we're supposed to be getting something about this. There is really very little reason, if an adult was the sole reason that this all happened, that we have Henry following the story as closely as he is. Does that make sense? Like, if this was all just Jonathan, why even add this layer of Henry consistently sitting here watching the news and no one ever telling him to to really quit it? Except for, I mean, I know people, people are listening, you might say, oh, no, Grace came in and told him to put it away. Yes, of course. But that was almost just like manners, not so much like you shouldn't be watching your father's murder trial. I agree a little bit and I disagree a little bit. So 
I think the fact that his, his father, and I think they have done a good job in the first two episodes of demonstrating how important to Jonathan Henry's opinion of him is and how important Jonathan is to Henry and getting his approval. So the fact that he is being obsessive over this case and trying to follow it on the news because it's his dad, that makes a lot of sense to me. I didn't bump on that. That that felt right to me. And I think when Grace comes in, she tells him to shut it off. I thought she told him because of the thing that they were actually talking about, the, the bludgeoning weapon to the head, the fact that they're talking about uh, the case moving forward. I think... I thought it was more about the subject matter than the manners. Maybe, The but, interesting but, thing is that I want to say, though, I think you're right, though, that Franklin, this old school old dude, is okay. I know my son's grandfather, if he had an iPad or a phone out at the table and was watching a video, he would lose his absolute God-loving mind. Yeah. So the fact that Franklin is allowing this and the subject matter of what he's watching, it's not like watching the Jetsons. He's wa- you know, he's watching this brutal news coverage. I I think that's very intentional. I I my feeling is that Franklin is trying to sow or encourage a, a, a lack of faith in Jonathan. Interesting. So I I completely agree with you, especially this generational portion, like. There's no reason why the show needs to have these scenes of Henry doing this and having, again, someone of an older generation who is a therapist, mind you, right? That's what Franklin's mm-hmm. gig is. Yep. He would have no concerns over a young person watching their father's, like, salacious news trial stuff on an iPad. Like, all of that felt wrong. What What are we supposed to be getting from this? Part of it is that I think that Franklin has odd boundaries, I think that there probably should have been a part there where he would have acknowledged that Henry is young and this doesn't make a lot of sense, but he didn't. Not unlike the scene that we have in this episode where he invites Grace to play like a duet essentially with him. I mean, she's playing like one hand of it. But the thing is that the way that he says it, the way that he's like, be my right hand. And then he goes, please. Like, I had like all these grosso boundary issues that she even says. And maybe she doesn't say it really like loudly, but she says like, this makes me sad. This makes me think of mom. You know, like this doesn't really feel like the right time for this. (laughs) And then it's like he, the way that he kind of like begs at her and the way that she relents and just does what he asks is like, oh, Franklin, you feel you feel odd to me. Like you feel like you treat other people, either you're ignoring them like Henry at the table or you're just really don't care. And you just kind of like want what you want out of them. The the term is the electric complex, which is like the reverse of the edible complex Ooh. where a son is becomes desirous of the mother to the point of even maybe considering offing the father. It, Franklin's giving out real mixed messages about his daughter here. Uh, and, and, and that piano scene is super disturbing. I mean, he is a very controlling guy. I think that's the vibe he's giving off here. Mm-hmm. I think he very much wants to control his daughter. Now, where are their boundaries? Is he is he so advanced in his age that maybe he is confusing Grace for his dead wife? I don't think so. I don't think so. I had the exact same icky vibe from you when he when he's telling her you like please and she's like yeah. no like it makes me like feel a mom. Yeah. it's really disturbing mm-hmm. it's not like a cute dad it's not like a cute dad daughter moment we're playing a heart and soul and yeah. you know I want you to play the right hand this is like 
play piano with me. Yeah, it's just I, it's I it's odd. Chair. And so I feel like, you know, as the show like shows us different little vignette scenes, which some which a lot of these kind of just are. We just have like a moment in time with them. I always try to think, what am I supposed to get out of this? And I have real concerns about Franklin's boundary issues. And then Henry's just sort of like ability to be soaking in all this information publicly it would be one thing if they showed him in his bedroom laying on the bed looking at his ipad but he's not he's like at the kitchen table obsessed with it yeah and everybody's kind of fine with it like right we saw last episode where he was coming down the stairs he was descending the stairs looking at his phone when it was uh the news coverage at his school like but then when they get to the school he goes is this for the for the for the mom like you're like what? We are, at the end of this episode, are halfway through the six-hour miniseries, and I've got some Henry concerns, I've got some Franklin mm-hmm. concerns. That scene ends, his mother sends him upstairs, and he goes and he treasures the room a bit, and then he settles on staring at a picture of his father, which he does not destroy. He grabs it and stares at it, kind of longingly. And and I think that kind of goes towards the whole, like, seeking, looking for his father's approval. He wants his father to be the man that he has built him up in his head, which is a theme of the show. And I think there's all, I think there's grace stuff on this now. This is the stuff that she preaches with her patients. The, you know, from the book, the idea of you should have known is all, all about her counseling session with that, the female patient in the first episode of, you know, you put on men what you want them to be instead of what they actually are. I think grace is doing that in this episode as she's trying to find defenses for, uh, Jonathan that maybe allow him to be not guilty or not as guilty. And I think Henry's doing that also with the staring at his father. That, that, that was my feeling. Like they're searching. The two of them are searching for ways for Jonathan not to be a murderous monster. Let me ask you, does, does the, does the fact that we find out at that dining table that Jonathan drained some of their bank account? Does that change anything about Jonathan for you in terms of either pre-planning or in terms of like, it's one thing to have been swept up with this woman, but it's another thing to me to have like gotten into the bank account and taken money out. Right before that, she talks about how he's getting a public defender because remember, he hasn't been working for a while. Mm -hmm. So I took the draining the bank accounts more as a Jonathan had been raiding their savings to keep up the appearance that he was working versus anything else. Okay. Not that he was necessarily spending it on Elena or his affair, which maybe is part of it. I mean, you made a very good point of how did Grace not notice? Well, if Jonathan was in charge of their bank accounts, you know, she's making a ton of money, I'm sure, as a Manhattan therapist. But if it's going into the account and only Jonathan is actively checking that and he knows that, well, he can keep the finances flowing. He can keep their lifestyle flowing probably for a while if they had quite a nest egg built up to keep them afloat without her knowing it because he was he was slowly draining the bank account. Something tells me that they're going to end up being in some sort of financial dire straits. Like, And I don't know why, but something about this whole thing, just sort of like, just when you were talking, I was like, man, that's sort of like playing that, that shell game of like moving money around and all that crap. Like that's so just like red flag. Like what else was going on here? The fact that we find out too that he had asked for money from Franklin that whole conversation is an interesting conversation with Franklin and Grace because it's it's part of the larger Franklin sowing seeds of distrust and discord um, between Grace and Jonathan. I think in the same way that he was allowing Henry to watch 
negative coverage of his father. I think that whole conversation revealing in a teary drop of, you know, he, do you think Franklin has cried at any point no. in the last, I don't know, 50 years of his life, but for him to get so teary. But did he get teary or was it just manipulative? He's playing her. This, his whole reveal of, you know, he asked me for $500,000 and, you know, I, he, he knew you wouldn't do it. And he said that you were having financial problems. And so, you know, I believed him and I wanted to, I wanted to help. I wanted to feel like a hero kind of thing. That's all him. Like, like he, he had squeezed onions under his eyeballs <laughs> right before she came in the room for that conversation. We don't know why yet, but Franklin is actively trying to wedge apart Jonathan and grace is it just because jonathan isn't good enough for his daughter is it because franklin wants to control her and henry we don't know but that whole conversation the reveal of the five hundred thousand dollars was just meant to sow distrust and and discord among them but we can't ignore the fact that franklin then gets on the subway and goes hangs out outside the harlem apartment apartment of Fernando and Elena and Miguel and the baby's uh, apartment. What in the actual fuck? I, uh, and he's specifically watching Fernando holding the baby. That is a part where we kind of hit on this on the first two episodes of like, do we feel like that Grace is going to end up with that baby? Is this one of those? Oh, I'm going to throw this one out. What if Grace wanted this like daughter baby, right? We've got this little redheaded little girl running around in the in the opening credits. What if she wanted this baby really badly, right? And dad, just in the most twisted of ways, got it for her. Oh, it's just so weird. <laughs> but like I have just like all these little like the dad seems like he wants to try to help her. But like at the same time, he's like, Help her or control well, her? Well, I don't, I don't know yet. The motivations may seem the same at an early stage, but I think at some point it's quickly going to branch off to, uh, you know, help her or, um, or hurt her. And I don't know that it, I'm just making this connection now as, as I'm talking out loud. I don't know now that it's a coincidence that Fernando begins following Grace actively in that with that pink stroller. Yeah. After we see Franklin hanging out outside his apartment, I wonder if there was a conversation had between Franklin and Fernando that we weren't privy to. Yeah, good call. You know, maybe I want that baby there. <laughs> uh, Fernando, you know, uh, how much is it going to cost? Will it cost about $500,000 for you to hand over that there baby? Yeah. Because we haven't even discussed what do you think the $500,000 was for? Was it for the baby? Was it a trust? Was it to buy Elena silence so she wouldn't blow up his spot? Uh, what was the $500,000 for? Because if he was draining the bank accounts, it wasn't for keeping the household money or restocking the household cash. It had to have been something to do with the baby or the Alphas. It felt no? like it felt like buying the, the their silence. That's that's was my gut feel was like why it was like going. You know, it seemed like there was a a um, complaint at the hospital and then suddenly it was just gone. And so that I mean, doesn't that usually scream settlement money off to the side? So, oh, I mean, sure. it felt sure. like that's that probably sense, yeah. that's where that came from. But I do really want to talk about that conversation where the 500K came up because this is when Grace brings up this whole concept of the rescue romance and the victim mm-hmm. falling in love Hero with the, worship. Yep. falling in love with the savior. I am so curious about how much Franklin is really getting into this like, are you open to the idea of you and Jonathan getting back together? And then Grace goes, it's your move. And then he goes, he came to me for money. And it was like, like, (laughs) 
hold on, let me tell you one more bad thing about him. <laughs> you know, like yeah. really trying to monkey with all of that. And then how hard is Grace like fighting to find answers, to find a reason? I just did my research and I and I thought of this, you know, rescue romance thing, which don't we all call it like Florence Nightingale syndrome? There's a couple different phrases. I saw a white knight, uh, white knight syndrome is, is, is kind of what Jonathan has, the hero worship. Yeah. Uh, but I, I saw rescue syndrome. I saw, uh, rescuer syndrome. I saw hero worship. I just thought in pop culture, Florence Nightingale syndrome was like, was like a known thing. Like I, knew, I didn't look up anything. Yeah. I don't think this is actual, I don't think it's actually a DSM diagnosed, uh, thing, but it's definitely in pop culture, the concept of, falling in love with the with the savior kind of thing mm-hmm. but i think that conversation was interesting on the heels of stewart who now that stewart is talking has a lot of bad things to say about jonathan which is what grace was not there for grace was looking for like a defender of jonathan and he rent to stewart as someone who she identified as a friend or at least a former friend of jonathan's and now that stewart decided to blow his nda that he had signed he had lots of shit to say i mean he he's going into he wanted her he was willing to risk everything and he did uh he fed off the idolation what did you personally feel like when he says that even despite the fact that he had been warned he just continued to be with her in front of everyone's faces basically i think it bolsters the argument that jonathan was in love with her as jonathan says he was to people like stewart and i'm sure the medical board and the hospital and the lawyers for the hospital saw it as he was as henry says so frankly just fucking her he risked literally everything his career his marriage his family henry which i think is is a separate category for jonathan besides his marriage or next to his marriage he risked all of that for this woman i think that has to bolster his claim of it wasn't just sex. It wasn't just hero worship, you know, her hero worship of me. I'm sure it started that way. Mm -hmm. Does it change how you feel about him? I mean, do you think he's like a psycho that he could just like not pay attention to any of the rest of these people and everything else that obviously everyone was noticing and he just didn't even care? I, I don't think it makes him a psycho. I don't. I don't think his behavior is excused. I, I think infidelity is infidelity. You know. I, I think when you are love someone, I think you're hard pressed to find the limits of what you will and will not do for them if you truly love them. Mm. That's what I'm saying. I think. I think it really bolsters his claim, at least to him, right. he was truly in love with her. Mm. There's something about that that just it, it really to me it says something else, like more intense about him. That there's something that's just so I guess narcissistic or whatever that he's just like feels untouchable. Like well, who cares if I do this in front of everybody? Nobody's going to do anything to me. You know, warning after warning and then nothing. You know, like he doesn't. Care. I think there's a part of that. I think, and I think that's how it started. Remember, he had three warnings over the course of the the time period before he was let go. I'm sure it began as him just living out his narcissistic fantasies and, and hero worship white knight fantasies, because that seems exactly kind of who Jonathan is, yeah. right? That's the swashbuckling, weaponizing his charm Jonathan that we had seen the first episode. So I totally buy that. But the fact that he continued, the fact that, as Joe Stewart says, he was willing to and, in fact, did risk everything says that at some point anyway, it turned into something more. Maybe it was the fact that she got pregnant is why it turned into something Mm, more. That's possible, yeah. We have talked a lot on this podcast about how Grace handles information. She takes information like a champ. She has no, as if she is Botoxed from head to foot, she has no discernible reaction to any news she receives, no matter how 
shocking it is. Uh, which led us to discuss, I think last week in particular, led us to discuss the fact that perhaps she actually knew this information and is finally being forced to either admit it or being forced to break down the walls and be reminded of things that she has, that she knew and blocked out. You know, somewhere I think she knew that that baby was Jonathan's before Mendoza even tells her the paternity test results. When Franklin tells her, when he makes his chest move and tells her about the $500,000, Grace's eyes go as wide as I have ever seen them go mm-hmm. in a look of utter shock and surprise. And it's, again, it's just her eyes. They go super wide. There's no other discernible reaction. But it is the only reaction to news that she has reacted to visibly that is of a shocking nature, which tells me that this is actually information that she did not know. Whereas I think she knows or knew everything else that she has learned over the course of the first three episodes, mm. whether she has forgotten it or blocked it out or refused to take it in, whatever. I think this was the first genuine piece of news that she received that really actually surprised her was new information to her because her eyes, Caroline, watch it again. <laughs> they go super, super wide as if like a raccoon found on a garbage can with a flashlight. Wow. Like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Like I've been shocked. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was a very, Interesting, subtle piece of acting on Nicole Kidman's part. Let's talk about Jonathan a little bit because I really think that we have a lot of information that we gathered about him. And I was interested in the bits of information that they both showed us and didn't show us. So like starting with the prison intake, I felt like that whole portion could have been a lot grittier and a lot scarier. Like we didn't have to see him get like cavity searched. Whereas, you know, we just had, he just had like to say his name at the clipboard kind of thing. It was far less traumatizing than they could have made it. Do you think there was a reason for that? So I, I think this was a pretty accurate de- depiction of what the process actually looks like. So when you show up to Rikers Island, everyone getting off the bus with Jonathan, those are all people who had just been newly arrested and were awaiting arraignment. They are new arrivals at Rikers Island. Rikers Island is a jail. It is a large jail. It actually is like, I think it's like six or seven different like little prisons or little ho- detention centers on an island that sits in the East River between the Bronx and Queens in New York. And so the difference between a jail and a prison, at least in New York anyway, is a jail holds two kinds of people. It holds people who have been convicted of a misdemeanor, and a misdemeanor is a crime that carries less than a year of jail time. Uh, it also holds people that are awaiting trial, awaiting arraignment, awaiting sentencing, or during while a trial is going on, when when you get shuttered, when, you know, the, the judge gavels the day over, and, you know, they shuffle you back out of the courtroom, you get back on the bus, you go back to jail. That's what a jail is. A prison is where you go after you've been convicted of a felony, something that carries more than a year of, of, okay. of, of sentence, of penalty. Uh, a prison is what you see in Oz. Well, we've all seen that, like cavity search, cavity search, right? We've all seen that, that right? That's, that's happening in prison. Yeah, like, uh, you know, like, yeah, grab okay. your buttocks and cough, you know. Yeah. So I, I actually thought that was pretty interesting. Given the press and coverage that this case is is gathering and is garnering, I mean, just look at the arraignment and the, the circus, the media circus inside yeah. the courtroom. I was surprised that they didn't put him in solitary confinement, that he was with in Gen, in Gen Pop, where people could get to him, because a celebrity like that is going to cause like a public safety issue and not out of John and not out of necessarily caring about Jonathan and his well-being, but just for 
proper administration of the jail. Well, when you say that, you mean high profile, right? Yes, that's what I mean. I, I, yes, I mean high profile, like, you know, someone, someone who is accused of ki- killing a very, you know, pretty attractive mom of a, of a young child and a young baby. That's going to attract a lot of people with very strong opinions. Yeah, even just that view of like the whole room of, of men sleeping on those cots, I was like, holy smokes, would I not be able to close my eyes? But that's it. But again, no, that's jail versus say, prison though right because some of those people aren't going to be there tomorrow a lot of those people won't be there tomorrow it was one of the few scenes that we had though that was jonathan specific because the majority of scenes that we have are grace and or grace with someone else but this was just jonathan grace wasn't there and so to be able to just have moments with just jonathan i feel like this is one of the first times when we're really seeing that which also again makes me think about who's controlling who who's Whose hand is on that upper arm squeezing and who's covering for someone else? And the fact that we got to episode three and I don't think that Jonathan's had scenes where it's just what he's going through till now. So what does that mean? Why? Why? You know, we've like you said, we've seen plenty of grace by herself. Well, I think I think Jonathan is someone who needs someone. This is the hero worship. Jonathan needs to be the center of a room or at least be receiving. Uh, idolation or adoration from someone. Think about all of his interactions that we've seen up until now. He was being raved about at the gala by Grace's friends. Oh, he's such a good guy dealing with cancer and with a humor. We see him talking with Henry, his son, who looks up to him, literally looks up to him, but also figuratively looks up to him. Um, we, we've seen him with Grace where he's being a sassy monkey, you know, and, you know, I'll put my gloves on and come scrub you down. Like everything we've seen with Jonathan up until now has been Jonathan being cheeky or being admired. This is the first time Jonathan, no one is praising Jonathan. No one is looking, no one is trying to get advice for Jonathan or ask him or make him the center of their world. Why do we go with him when we didn't see him feverishly, you know, trying to get back to the beach house? We didn't see him like we've not we've not been with him. So what's new? What's different? What am I supposed to learn from that? Some part of me feels like this is the first time that Jonathan, while you say, yes, he hasn't been with someone else. He he also this is like the first time he's like on his own, like away from everyone. And we actually see that, which is like, huh? Well, I I took it to be part of the conversation with the hero worship. This is the first time he's been stripped of that drug. You know, like someone who has their cigarettes taken away or has their their narcotics taken away. Jonathan has been stripped from that pipeline that, that fuels him. And I don't know that Jonathan is terribly comfortable being on his own or being alone. I think he needs he needs that drug being pumped into his system of people paying attention to him or involving him. Okay. But like cinematically, it's not Jonathan's story so far in episodes one and two. It's Grace's story of dealing with what Jonathan did. So fascinating to start twisting the camera to be like Jonathan, seeing him, seeing what he's going through right now. That's a first, you know, and that makes me be like, huh, you know, are we starting to twist the camera a little bit? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think we started off this episode by talking about how the first two episodes really set the table and 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 told us what kind of things we're going to be having for our meal. But I think this is the first episode that got into that 
unfolding the story proper. And you can't unfold the story properly without Jonathan. There's We don't right. know anything about him. We only know what people's really impressions of him are or what Jonathan is like viewed with or next to other people. We have to figure out a little bit on who is Jonathan Frazier, the man standing alone. So interesting that the story chooses to do that. And I mean, in addition, this is the first episode that we had a Henry alone scene with him, like looking at the picture of Jonathan. Like these are times when they're like away from grace and they're having their own moments. And that hasn't happened. You know, everything else has been in conjunction with or in relation to another person. And so now people are starting to kind of isolate and be sort of their own entities, which is fresh for us. Let's stay on Jonathan for a second and go to the arraignment because this brings in the Sylvia angle. And you and I have already flagged Sylvia as someone to watch because she seems kind of like an odd duck or I don't know if that's the right phrasing. She seems like a a little bit of a wild card, a, a purported friend, maybe Grace's best friend, but maybe not as good a friend as maybe Grace thought she was. What did you think of the heavy, heavy eye contact going on in the arraignment courtroom between Jonathan and Sylvia at the end there as he's about to be taken away? So I vacillated the entire time Sylvia was on screen between being like, okay, is she just being boots on the ground for Grace, just sort of radioing back, if you will, like, this is what's happening. This is what I'm seeing. Because she's like basically Grace's proxy. She can't, you know, Grace can't be there for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, maybe she's Grace's proxy. And then also, though, the amount of times that we had Jonathan looking at Sylvia and really laser eye looking at Sylvia. I fucking would be the word if they were in a bar instead of a courtroom. No, I'm not going with I fucking. Oh, I would. I'm going to say seriously sending a message, but I don't know what the message is. That's the fun of the mystery of it. You may know what this message is, but I don't know that I know what this message is. I think it could be anything from where's my wife to please tell her I didn't do this to Please don't tell her I slept with you. (laughs) You know, like we could run the gamut here. I like the Sylvia layer and I like that she was being used as all these moments where we got to know more about the lawyers that were coming Mm -hmm. into play because that was a cool way to have us get a lot of information really quickly. What did you think? Of I that? loved how she kind of was giving like a live on the phone play by play before the yeah. before the court officer shut her down and telling her to put her phone away. You know, we, we learned about the, the badger, Robert Edelman. We learned about Catherine Stamper, a heavy hitter for the DA's office, who by her being there signifies that they're taking this seriously and they're not playing around. She has now shown up at the arraignment. As soon as it came out last week, that Jonathan had hired Sylvia and Grace didn't know about it, I think you yeah. automatically have to put Sylvia in in out of the steadfast best friend category and into the more murky gray, don't know where mm-hmm. her loyalties really lie, has she fucked Jonathan category. Because yes. that eye contact, if they were, like, I'm serious, if they were in a bar instead of a courtroom and I'm Sylvia, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that guy's into me. 
Okay, but the circumstances matter. I don't know. I'm going with at least that spectrum of anything there, including, but I'm including, please don't tell her I slept with you. <laughs> I'm including that right in there. But, I, you know, I'm thinking if it was, where's my wife, doesn't he look at her and then look around? Like, there's ways to convey where is my wife. You look at her, then you look around, then any kind of shrug kind of thing. I, I, I think there are ways to indicate it was about Grace and not about him and Silly. I don't know. Maybe I think less of Jonathan <laughs> than I actually think I do. But that's what that eye contact was telling me. I want to say Sylvia, despite maybe not being a great best friend as it turned out, but maybe she is. Maybe I'm besmirching her reputation unnecessarily. She, again, gives Grace solid advice on her way to the courtroom. And I loved her little walk and talk on the cell phone. She tells her that she's got to get her own attorney. She brings up the exact thing that we saw Mendoza doing. Like, they're going to squeeze you either because they think you're an accomplice, because look at the fact pattern. How could you not know? Or because they want your cooperation fully, so they're going to make you feel like you did something wrong, even if you didn't do something wrong, and Grace fully yeah. thinks she didn't do something wrong, get your own lawyer, because leverage is leverage, and they're going to squeeze you, which is great, great advice. She gave it to her last week. She gives it to her this week even more emphatically. And as of right now, Grace still has not taken that advice, which is troubling. In a situation where your spouse was accused of murder and you were kind of in this gray zone where it seemed like the police were looking at you in some way, would you hire your own attorney? Yes. I would as well, kind of immediately, yeah. and I, could, I wouldn't even feel bad remotely about it. Uh, no. The idea of hiring an attorney automatically makes you feel like you did something wrong, and I think that's what Grace is conveying here. But Grace... You are a very intelligent woman. You hold multiple degrees in psychotherapy. Get your own fucking attorney. You are, I mean, you're not some rube. You're not some country mouse come to the big city. You know this is a sharks eat minnows kind of world. You have to get your own attorney. Plus, your two best confidants, your father and your best friend, are both telling you to get your attorney. Like, Girl, get your fucking attorney. What are you doing? You, you are running and hiding. Even in the beach house, you weren't safe. Even at the beach house, you had to get the cops involved. You need your own attorney. If not for yourself, for your son, for protection, for the, for the armor that having an attorney provides you, even if it's symbolic armor. It's, it's reckless, I think, and irresponsible of her that she hasn't done that yet. And troubling, because I think, again, it starts to question her mental faculties, which I don't think we can say are 100% there. I mean, we talked a lot about this last week, how it seems like she's kind of cracking up a little bit. I think we yeah. saw more of that this week. The fact that she still hasn't gotten an attorney. My voice got very high there. You know, I'm, you know, you know, I'm feeling it when I, my voice cracks <laughs> like I'm going through puberty. She got her own attorney. Yeah, I think it's so irresponsible. And I think it's really, I think it's really troubling for Grace. Like I'm troubled on her behalf about her, worried about her that she hasn't gotten one yet. I felt like the other players that they have here. I like this judge is like no nonsense. That was our I love was Judge Layla all Scott. About the judge, she was just. <laughs> I was right. like, love you, Judge. You're like totally my jam. Yeah. Let's talk about the lawyers a little bit that are coming into play because I really liked both the Badger and the the Badger Robert Edelman. I super dug Haley later. So I want to talk about our lawyers a little bit. Yeah, I think Robert Edelman played a great public defender. Uh, you know, what we would call an 18B lawyer. These are the, these are the lawyers who get picked up um, uh, the public defender cases. They are overworked. They are jaded. They ha handle a lot of cases. When, when we learn that it's been a week 
since his arraignment, uh, since Jonathan's arraignment. And this is the first time Robert is showing up since we saw him in the court with his like, you know, kind of like nebbish, slovenly kind of, you know, uh, I'm Robert Edelman, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's got roots in the community, a judge, you know, the bail and, and, you know, like the whole thing, like it was such a good impersonation of what that kind of lawyer would be. And the fact that it had been a week sounds shocking, but it didn't really shock me. He's not getting paid anything. He's getting paid peanuts. He, you know, the amount of cases that public defenders have to do to like make their ends meet, like is ridiculous. So yeah, uh, it did not shock me at all. And I thought he, maybe gave out the best advice in this episode. I I mean, we're, we're starting the, the clip that we began at the beginning of this episode really captured a lot of it. But he gives some real hard truth to Jonathan that Jonathan, kind of like Grace, seems not ready to hear. Like, they're in this other kind of fantasy world. Jonathan doesn't seem to have a real appreciation for his situation. Your lawyer doesn't care if you're guilty or not. Your, your defense attorney doesn't care if you're guilty or not. You may want them to care, but... At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're guilty or not. It matters if they can, you know, make a jury feel like there is some question whether or not you're guilty. You know, it's so that's like a super lawyer comment. I mean, I think all of us want to think that the person that's protecting us or arguing for our side is actually on our side. I think we want to think that, right? That's fair. I, I, I think so, and I think probably if I'm in Jonathan's, you know. Uh, position, I'm probably, you know, saying the same thing. Like, it's important for me, lawyer, that you understand I am innocent. I get that impulse. But when he says, don't talk to anyone here because everyone in that jail is a potential snitch, is someone you're going to see again, is someone you're going to talk to about the crime, and then you're not going to see again. They're magically going to disappear from the jail, and you're going to see them at your trial when they get on on the stand and testify against you about everything that you said, you know, X, Y, and Z on a night when you were crying about how you really did kill her, uh, is going to come back to bite you in the ass. So say nothing. You know, when he turns to him and says, innocence is good, saying nothing is better. Loved it. Mm -hmm. Loved it. I loved everything about Robert Edelman, but I really (laughs) loved his whole shtick about why doctor doctors are assholes because they can be and that Jonathan no longer can afford to be an asshole was great. It was the exact kind of thing that that us that a egotist like Jonathan needs to hear to, to bring him out of the clouds and put his feet a little bit on the ground. What did you think of Robert Edelman? Am I am I idolizing it? Not idolizing. Am I am I braving him about him a little too much here? Maybe I liked how he handled everything with grace. Actually, when he had that conversation mm-hmm. with Jonathan, I think that he had some hard truths that he did need to say, and he did need to understand that you know, for as much as you were saying, like at the beginning of this, like it's high profile, he should be sort of you know like in isolation and all. It's interesting how he's not. He's just like everybody else, and that's exactly what. The message was like, you're nobody special. You don't get to act like right. an asshole. We're not going to do anything special for you. So I liked that a lot. And his comment that, listen, money will get you out of here. My persuasive skills won't. I mean, that's a, one a really honest comment about Ro- Robert Edelman's self-evaluation of his skills as a lawyer, because I don't know that anyone could just get them off without him paying the bond or the bail, you know, the bond or the cash set for the bail. No, Jonathan, you don't get to just walk out of here. You get to walk out of here right. if you can post the bond or the $2 million cash. That's how you walk out of here, you know? Like, come on, get with it, you know? <laughs> 
Snap out of it. The way Cher famously said in Moonstruck. Snap out of it. Tell me about his conversation to Grace. What did you like about his post-traumatic betrayal theory? I think that it was a new voice saying a lesson that we all sort of needed to listen to. Just like how it was, you know, the therapy sessions were being used to be able to give us information. She's not being an active therapist right now. You know, her appointments, people are not showing up. So we need some other people to kind of slide in there and provide those like, you know, holding up the mirror and like talking about, you know, self-reflection and whatnot. So when he is explaining to her, like, what would you actually think about him prior to having been betrayed by him? I think that that was really a very good question. I don't know, man. Would you not vouch for your spouse? I think that's kind of what he's getting to. I mean, he he asks. Well, I'm asking you. I'm really asking you. Like, no, we, I can't. We, I can't we, imagine the situation where I don't vouch for my spouse. Almost. Can I even say this? This is going to sound terrible. Almost out of my own pride and ego. He can't have done this because otherwise, who am I to have been with him and to have been a part of this whole thing? So therefore. I'm going to vouch for him just because I can't embarrass myself any further, which is terrible. And that's a huge admission. But that's I think that's real. I think the only way I don't vouch for my spouse is if I personally know 100 percent that they did the thing they're being accused of. And still you don't. You're not like the alibi or anything. No. If I know that they're guilty and I know it's something heinous, you know, are we talking like stole, you know, a Slurpee? No, or... we can talk about what we're talking about. We're talking about murder. No, if I know, if I am Grace and I know 100% for sure he did it, watched him do it. What, what... Watched him do it? Oh, gosh, you're in that. Ooh, don't be like making stuff up now at this point. Come on now. If I know 100% in whatever fictional world we're, we're talking about, if I know 100% Jonathan did the thing he's being accused of doing, no, yeah. I don't vouch for him. Okay, wow. Okay. Why would you want a murderer by your son, by you? How would you ever sleep? How could you ever sleep again? No matter how many, how, no matter how many blocks distance you put between him and you, you put a murderer on the street. Which I think is, was brought up really very well with Haley Fitzgerald. Whenever she comes in on the scene and she's saying, you know, okay, I can get him out of here. That's true based on mucking things up. But do you want him out on the street? Do you want him to be considered innocent? And then are you okay for yourself and your son to go out in the world knowing he's out there? All of these such good questions, right? Like right. what would you do? What What is the right thing to do? Because I think, I mean, I, I, most of the people that I know, you know, I'm driving the getaway car. I'm helping you dig the grave. I'm I'm hiding this for you. Even if you know Jonathan did the thing. Well, I'm only hiding the body with you because I know you did this. You know mm. what I mean? Like, I'm only hiding this body because you have the body. And so I know you did the thing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to help you. You know, that's that's the loyalty portion of it all. I understand, though. I understand the whole bigger picture. Like, he had an affair. This isn't just like he killed a hobo in the middle of the night. And then he comes to you and he's like crying like, oh, shit, this whole thing happened. Please help me hide it. You know? That's different. If he kills the hobo and I know he killed the hobo, I don't defend, I don't vouch for him either. Unless it was, unless it was a, unless it was. Like self-defense. Uh, yeah. Un unless, it, that's what I'm saying. Like, I I have to know 100% like the circumstances. If it's like a cold-blooded thing, like he's walking down the street, he sees a hobo, he's disgusted by the fact that a hobo is on the street and bludgeons him to death. No, I'm not vouching for him. No, I, I would like to see him in jail for the rest of his life. That person should not be free. No. 
No. <laughs> I want our listeners to really think about this. You're in a long-term relationship with somebody. I, I understand, like, we have this layer of the affair, which, to be honest with you, I think is worse than the murder for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of the relationship portion of it all, for sure. So I'm trying to think, like, would most people still vouch for that person for, again, their selfish reasons? And then also for like the, yeah, maybe I'm going to have to protect Henry for the rest of our days, but that's better than him being, you know, the father being in prison and I'm going to lose my practice. And also if he's acquitted, if I vouch for him, he's acquitted, he didn't do it. I might be able to go back to my life as being a therapist. I might be able to have my world back. These are all things you tell yourself. I don't know that they actually happen. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a limit to my loyalty. But I think in Grace's case... The, the genius of the scene with Robert Edelman is that his, post his post-betrayal, post-traumatic betrayal, I think is very real. I think the idea that if someone does something in column A, betrayal-wise, I think the natural tendency is that we then look at that person and everything they've ever done and said to us through the lens of that and then begin to view them in that negative light in the, all the other categories, the B, C, D categories. So the idea of he fucked another woman, so he must be a murderer. I think that's a right. very real thing that people do because of the hurt of betrayal. The sting of betrayal. And again, still very fresh at this point that she's, that she knows all this. So I think it's actually a really smart conversation. Again, he knows people. A public defender person sees hundreds of people a week, a week he's dealing with, and he's dealing with some of the lowest of the low. He knows people. And so the idea that he, one, is smart enough to ask her, think about before the betrayal, how you would assess him. Is he someone a killing a uh, capable murder? But then to also give his own assessment. And from all intents of their first meeting in the jail, he's not terribly impressed with, uh, with Jonathan. He thinks he's a snob. He thinks he's an asshole. He thinks, and he says here, he's like, I think he's a bit of a dick, but I don't think he's a killer. That's really important. Someone like Robert Edelman, I'm going to take their opinion very seriously because of what he does for a living, because of the people and the human interaction that he witnesses. You know, there's only so many kinds of people in the world. There's only so many kinds of personalities. And so he sees all of those personalities over and over and over again. He has probably met a dozen, at least Jonathan Frazier's in his career. So I trust his opinion and his instinct on who Jonathan is, that he's a bit of a dick, but not a killer. I think that had actually a lot of weight for me personally, as a viewer watching the show, really, really continued to move Jonathan out of the he did it category. I agree with you very much. Oh, let's talk about the charges real quick before we move off of Jonathan and the arraignment. Jonathan is being charged with first-degree murder and aggravated rape. Uh, now, aggravated rape is not actually the name of an official count of rape in New York. There mm. are degrees of rape. There's, you know, rape in the, think, fourth, third, second, and first degree. There's several counts of aggravated assault. There's uh, sexual abuse. There's aggravated sexual assault. Um, but there's no aggravated rape. So I'm not sure what they're exactly accusing him of here. But any kind of rape seems like a weird charge to me. They have a baby together. And she is not making a, plaint, a complaint of rape because she's dead. I don't understand where this charge is coming from. Did that make sense to you hearing that? It really doesn't. And it makes me think that we're missing additional information that they have that they just haven't told us yet. It's something that I think 
kind of tips their hand, like much in the same way that this whole time we've been like, what else do the do the detectives know that they just keep harping on Grace? It's like at this point, it's like, what else do, does the, the DA have that they're willing to put this charge out there? So it is curious. In New York, first degree murder and, and honestly, second degree murder for what Jonathan is being accused of is a form of felony murder. So in, to be guilty of first-degree murder in New York, most of the first-degree murder statute deals with killing, intending to kill someone and killing them, and the person is either some a police officer or an emergency responder, some kind of like person like that, a judge. But then there is also the the part of the first degree murder where most people get if you get charged with first degree murder where you get charged up it's felony murder so you intend to kill the person and you kill them but you're also committing another felony at the same time robbery arson rape uh well several classes of rape and sexual assault these kinds of things so you have to not only intend and kill the person you have to be doing another felony at the same time to be charged with uh, first degree murder in New York state because Elena wasn't a judge or any kind of firefighter or emergency medical technician. She wasn't, you know, a, a CO in a prison. Uh, she, it wasn't a murder for hire. That's another category of first degree murder. He hadn't been accused of murder or convicted of murder within like a, a 24 month period. So there's all these other things that you can get charged with first degree murder, murder in New York. But the only one that remotely works here is felony murder where he intended to kill her and you know, a doing something, another felony. So they kind of have to charge him with rape in order for them to be able to charge him with first degree murder. One, I don't see where a rape charge could possibly be made against him. Two, looking at that crime scene, that crime scene always spoke to me as a crime of passion, not something premeditated, not an intent to kill. Something that came up in the heat of passion, which just is manslaughter, which is not nearly as sexy it does not have the same kind of sentencing and penalty as as first degree murder so it's it's an interesting charge i think a huge piece of of evidence to that is that the murder weapon is supposedly something there on the scene that the person would have picked up and grabbed the hammer as yes. opposed to being a knife or a gun or something they brought with them so i mean i think that's a huge part to to intent you know and and pre-planning well, i mean based on the crime scene and 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 the murder weapon we learned we learned this episode it's the sculpting hammer yeah premeditation doesn't really seem like a thing that's like, on why the would table you show here. up with no weapon if you had premeditated <laughs> the crime you know like you'd have something yeah. on you to kill her yeah 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 plus it's interesting you have to get into the idea of the timeline too because th- and this becomes this becomes a huge opening for especially a good defense attorney like probably Robert Elderman maybe but definitely Haley Fitzgerald oh, is Haley, I mean, she says sure I mean, she she's all about making the muck right mm-hmm. in in Jonathan's timeline he fought with her he shows up he confronted her they fought they fucked he left he comes back then supposedly murders her would be the timeline when did he stop raping her, allegedly, and then kill her? Because there, there is a time causality in the charge also. It has to be during the commission of or from the flight of murder. So if, like, he fucked her or raped her, uh, which they're alleging, and then left for a bit, came back 
and it was like, no, stabby, 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 stabby. Like, I, I don't know that they're really linked. It's a, it's an odd charge to me. It seems much sexier, sexier. It seems very high profile. I don't know that they can make that charge stick. Without knowing more, based on the information we have now, seems like a tough charge to make stick to me. I'm not a criminal defense attorney. I'm a corporate lawyer. But it, to me, it seems, it seems like an odd charge. It seems like a field day and a playground for someone like Haley Fitzgerald to, to be able to play with and play in. Speaking of Haley Fitzgerald, what did you think of Miss Fitzgerald? I had a feeling that you really liked her. I did really like her. I feel like she feels like that really strong, really no-nonsense, just blunt-as-hell kind of woman that I love to hang around. She is someone who I feel like Grace needs no fooling, like just like this is the situation, this is how it's going to be handled. And I actually really loved her little personality trait where she's like, I don't joke. (laughs) Like that whole part, that whole idea of her is like, we need you because we need someone here that Grace can talk to and have some amount of just, this is the way it is, Grace. And like, I don't give a shit about anything other than telling you what's real. And we need someone to tell Grace what's real (laughs) because that is something that we have been struggling with for too long here. What do you think about Haley? A, is she going to be hired and or will she be successful with Jonathan? Remember, Franklin offered Haley up for Grace as her own attorney. But after their conversation, you know, after the creepy piano scene, he relents and says that he'll introduce her to Haley and set them up together for her to represent Jonathan, which makes me think that Franklin will also be flipping, you know, fitting the bill for that. Fl- flipping the, flitting the bill? Footing? Footing. I think that that also means that Franklin would be footing the bill for Haley because she is going to be very expensive. Everything about her says expensive uh, defense attorney because she specializes in getting acquittals. So I, I loved her. I loved her sass. I loved her. I loved her no bullshit attitude. I loved her real talk. Listen, I like lawyers who talk real talk. Too many people only hear what they want to hear. And I think a good attorney tells you what you need to hear. If you have any kind of brain in your head, you're going to listen to what that attorney tells you. They get paid either way. They don't get paid to be nice to you. They get paid for giving you advice that's going to keep your ass out of jail for the rest of your life. Yeah, I liked it. That same For the same reason, I liked Catherine Stamper, too, the DA. You know, I think she's making good points. Like, this guy's accused of heinous crimes. Don't give him fucking bail. What are you, insane? <laughs> you know, he's a rich guy. He's already fled once. He already, you know, led the police on a, a, at least a days-long, you know, manhunt for him. If not for his wife, you know, turning him in, we still don't have this guy. You know, what are you, insane? I, so I like even the DA, the hard-hitting DA here. Uh, so all three attorneys we meet tonight, I was actually really impressed with. But I really like Haley. I can't wait to see her more because we saw her with Grace, but I kind of want to see her with Jonathan. Me too. Because I want Jonathan to start saying bullshit like, my heart, my heart, you know my heart. My heart wouldn't allow it, nor my ego, but you know my heart, Grace. I could never do this. Dude, Really? Don't talk to Grace about your heart right now. Are you insane about what your heart would allow? She doesn't fucking care about what she knows is in your heart. Dude, come on. Let's talk about the visitation because there there were some real moments there that I felt like, wow, wow, that we're seeing the, and this is all happening. I picked up on the smallest of things that Grace crying on the car on the way to the prison visit, still wearing that gigantic wedding ring. Which I do not think I would be wearing. I, I would have rather either put it in the drawer or most women who have a gigantic wedding ring like that also have just a band 
maybe put the band on, but something about wearing that gigantic ring just felt very tone deaf to this entire situation. Um, I also thought that the way that they had this, um, I don't, I, I want to almost call it like a playroom. Like it felt so weird how they just had these like plastic chairs and like, it just was like this kind of big space, like as if everyone was like playing checkers or something instead of having like an actual prisoner visit. I appreciate your distinction between jail and prison. And so I guess that's why the setting was much more casual than I would have expected because I guess these people haven't actually been found guilty of anything at this point. It was just so odd to me. Did it? Did that visit seem right to you? Did it seem realistic? The whole thing seemed very awkward, which is I, which is what I expected to be. But I guess watching it play out, I was like, oh man, it really is awkward. And, and I think this is a testament to to Hugh Grant and Nicole Kimmon and the pros that they are. Uh, Jonathan just wants to believe to be believed. You know, I think he gets a bit that the ship has sailed on his relationship. But much like, I mean, he repeats here that he wants her to bring Henry because he needs, Henry needs to hear from him that he didn't do this. Like, again, and and I, I keep bringing this up only because he keeps bringing it up. His obsession with Henry having this positive view of him is a really interesting character trait. Um, but everything about Grace from the car ride, like you said, I, I, I noticed the ring also. I took it more like it's a talisman, almost like, like, especially after her conversation with Robert Edelman, like she is holding out hope, like a, like a little ember of hope has ignited in her that maybe he's actually not guilty of this thing. Maybe it was just the sting of the affair that was uh, making her assume he really did do it. And that there are alternatives, maybe actually really good alternatives to this. I mean, she turns her lens kind of hardcore onto Fernando later. Yeah. You know, she, inter- she, she talks to Stuart about it. Like she's kind of like a dog with a bone after that conversation with Robert. And I like that. I want her to try and find out the truth and not just roll over because I think John, Jonathan is being very persuasive. His heart bullshit notwithstanding, I think he's actually generally being pretty sincere seeming because um, he doesn't strike me as a psychopath or a sociopath who who can feign sincerity and not really feel it. Um, I think part of his shtick is that he is sincere and it's part of the charm of his, his weaponized charm. So I, I find him very persuasive and she does too. Right. I mean, the the thing that Franklin feared, you know, when he says, don't go see him, what possible truth do you think you can get out of him? But she's already made up her mind. She's going to go see him. You know, she needs to see him. She needs to confront him kind of thing. Like she wants to believe Jonathan. She wants there to be a reasonable explanation other than him for why this horrible thing has taken place. And I think they really did a really good job of kind of it's a really like like high wire act being awkward, being kind of afraid. I mean, it's only, what, 24 hours, 48 hours from when she's calling the cops and thinks she's fucking terrified. And now they're sitting across from each other and she's wearing the ring and she's contemplating believing him and, and helping him and vouching for him and, and, and working on his defense outside of the jail. Like, that's a huge swing. That's a huge mood swing in 24, 36, 48 hours. I thought that the visit with Henry was much more fascinating, I guess. Their give and take was so curt and so, I mean, I love that Henry is so blunt with just, did you, did you kill her? Like the end, were you fucking her? The end, just, just so just right in his face. And we needed that 
Because, you know, in the same way that we needed Haley for Grace, we need Henry to come in and be like, the fuck. One line that he said really got me scratching my head. When he says, another fine mess I've gotten you into, that is not something that I would say to any of my kids. So I'm thinking, what, what, another fine mess? What, what are we talking about here? That is a Laurel and Hardy line. I'm almost positive. And, I, and he's sure, doing an but impression. but it has to be appropriate. Don't you think? I mean, you can use lines from any movie and I'm not and of course it's a it's a cliché line like I've heard it. But you only say it if there's actually been a previous mess, no? <laughs> you could just apply it to anything. This can be the first time mess and you can say another fine mess I've gotten you into and that's not odd. That actually I I heard that and I and I know the line and I know the the Laurel and Hardy line and and so it struck me more as just like a lived in moment of their relationship that we're getting a view of. Not that it was a literal, you know, this is the second bitch I've killed, you know, like nothing like that. that. I don't think that. I mean, obviously not that, but it implied history that they did not have seamless, however many years, 14 years of life that there, that there's been other things. Sure. Maybe that could be a lot of things. That could be any time Henry just said last week to Grace about how her and Jonathan would argue about him going off the grid all the time and, and not being responsive when he was away. It's in 14 years or let's say, you know, five years of Henry maybe being like a cognizant human being in the world who's picking up on things and, and understanding them to some extent. I'm sure there have been examples of larger and smaller incidences where Jonathan has met like Sadie Iyer of grace, or it's been, uh, you know, I, I, I remember plenty of times where me and my son would be kind of like, you know, two boys in a cookie jar with our hands caught in a cookie jar kind of thing and gotten in trouble with his mother, something like that. You know, I didn't think it was indicative of something too, too big. I thought it was more of just uh, uh, part of the language that they communicate with her, uh, him and his son. I, I mean, I give him also props for introducing uh, a tw- in 2020, his or 19 in 2019, introducing his son to Laurel and Hardy. I think that's actually pretty impressive. I mean, I would have rather personally Ivan and Costello. I think they were superior to Laurel and Hardy, but you know, at least he's showing him some classics. I thought Grace was really interesting in this scene because she's watching them like an anthropological study. She's doing like a human lie detector test, I felt, like the entire time watching him interact and answer Henry's questions. That's the true utility of Henry being there and grilling his father in a blunt way for Grace was that she got to watch Jonathan respond to them in a way that he wouldn't respond to her. Remember, remember how important Henry is to Jonathan, as important as Jonathan is to Henry. So watching them interact, I thought Grace... Grace was doing a lot of weighing there. She was like, like biblical Solomon level proportion, like weighing. And then I liked that the fact that they, you know, started holding hands kind of thing. Like for, for Jonathan winning back over his son and holding his hands, that's part of that whole ego and narcissism and, and idolation thing that he craved, that he didn't have that first quiet night moment in the jail. I think he was soaking all of that up, uh, with, with the contact with Henry until the, until the, the correction officer came over and broke them up. So the most important prison scene for me was this basketball court mess that was going on because it turns out that Jonathan is a fierce fighter and someone who would take things way further than most people. Were you yeah, it was gruesome. And alarmed. Waiting for a prison fight as soon as the fa- as soon as they didn't have him in solitary, I assumed there was going to be some altercation. You know, hey, you're that guy that killed that girl, kind of thing. Like, you know, you're you're the Richie Rich who did that thing. 
I was not expecting his violent defense of himself and reaction, the, the, the biting of the finger and yeah. the blood and the spitting. That really took me by surprise, really, really put me back on my heels. So does it change anything you think about Jonathan and what he's capable of? Is he capable of violence? Yeah. Sure. I, I think that's something that you definitely have to take away from note there. But I will, I would say though, he didn't start that fight. He didn't antagonize that fight. He just, once the fight had begun, violently defended himself and fought back. Roused to anger? Yeah. Really interesting to watch this little tiny guy kind of defend himself. I don't know why I think you grant is tiny. He seems he seems just like a little like you know put him put him in your pocket kind of yeah so it was interesting to see the level of violence in him did did it change for you did did do yeah. you see Jonathan differently I think that that is a really severe response I mean there are very few scenarios where you see someone bite someone else like that is a very aggressive like grotesque move you know I mean I, I, there's think of how many times you've seen a fist fight. And whether it's, you know, on a TV show or movie or whatever. And how many times have you seen a body part getting bitten off? It's a higher level situation that makes me be like, this guy, and I understand, don't get me wrong. I mean, I understand the guy was doing nothing. He didn't need to be picked on. He didn't need to be harassed, but he was. He's ready to go off. But still, shit, yikes. You don't think that that was like way too much? punch him but bite his finger off i mean he's on the bottom of that fight though right like it's not like he's sitting on top of the guy and bites his finger off but he's getting his ass kind of pummeled the guy's on top of him i've taught my son if someone goes and attacks him you kick him in the balls as hard as humanly possible do you did you ever teach him to bite his finger off i'd rather my son bite someone's finger off than get stabbed in the stomach or get punched into a coma and it's again, it's not like they were at like the Frick collection meeting Franklin in what it must be Franklin's office because he's always watching paintings at the Frick collection. It's not like they were there. They're in a jail setting. They're in a jail courtyard. Some guy, some some meth head has now picked a fight with you and is beating the shit out of you. I don't know. I don't know that I'm above biting to, to end the fight or to, to exercise some dominance. I have a really hard time with it. Like, it's the type of thing, I mean, they teach women all the time. They teach us to, like, poke out their eyes or, you know, do I, I, oh, it's really, it's really hard for me to think about being that damaging to someone else. I used to teach self-defense courses, and uh, especially around this time, as we're getting to the holiday season, especially women, you know, always have the sharp end of your keys between your fingers when you're in a parking lot at nighttime. You know, don't worry about getting blood on you the key is for you to leave that situation alive don't worry about your bags don't worry about your purse the idea is for you to leave alive and if that requires you to swing your arm around and stab them somewhere with the key their eye their neck their face they come at you with a weapon they're going to hurt you they're going to rape you or kill you you do what you have to do you're justified no, people don't get to take your life. People don't get to rape or stab you without you fighting back. And I think in a jail setting, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if this is on the street, maybe it seems uncalled for. Jonathan presumably has only seen prison movies, right? He has the same idea of prison as we do. Some Someone starts beating me up. Someone starts pummeling me and really getting the better of me where I'm on the ground. My face is in the dirt. I'm expecting some kind of shank, some kind of sawed off spoon or spork going into my side or something. I don't know. Right. So yeah, if, and if I can't kick him in the balls, if I can't gouge his eyes out or something, 
biting his finger seems like a pretty, pretty good idea. I'm not down on Jonathan. I mean, it's shocking. It's a shocking level of violence, and it's important to see it's in him because there are some people that have no level of violence. No matter how much they are poked, never get roused to that level. But most people do. It's just how long a fuse do they have? How long a fuse does someone have before they snap? And I'd like to say that even in the jail setting, even in the heightened pressure setting, he doesn't jump up and bite the guy right away. <laughs> well, thank it's goodness. not like the first it's not like the first move he does as soon as the guy says, you're that guy. You know, he doesn't turn around and bite him. He doesn't Mike Tyson his ear off. It requires a little bit. And it's not like the guards were breaking up that fight immediately either. I, I don't know how much shade we need to be throwing at Jonathan for that. But I think the show's doing that intentionally, though, to show us that violence is in him, that he can be he can be roused to that level of, of horrific blood splattering violence, which is important. Yeah, it really is. Let's talk about a different husband. Let's talk about Fernando. Oh, thank God, because he was next on my list, this too. This harassing of Grace, that, like, constant, like, hitting her in the heel. Oh, my God. Can I just tell you, one of the biggest crimes you can commit against me is fucking hitting me in the back of my heel with, like, a shopping cart or a stroller or something. Like, I'm going to get up in your face. So the fact that he just keeps, like, coming up on Grace that way, I was like, knock it off, dude. Knock it off. Why does he want to speak to her in the end? I don't, it was unclear to me. I watched this episode twice and it was still unclear to me. He says, you know, can we talk? She says, that's not a good idea right now. And he's like, you know, well, one would be a good time. You know, your husband already kind of killed my wife kind of thing. But I don't, I still don't understand why he wanted to speak to her. I mean, I don't think we got it. In Daddy that. Franklin maybe came to visit him. <laughs> uh, that's a possibility. I don't think that we got it in this conversation. Whatever it was that was supposed to happen here. I'm not so sure we got it because Grace doesn't just take it. You know, when he says stuff like what kind of doctor fucks her patient's mom and she says what kind mm -hmm. of mom fucks her child's doctor. Like she doesn't oh God, just like that. roll over on this stuff. And I do think that that matters because yeah. I don't think he got what he intended to come there for. Whatever was you think he, like, like intimidating her or whatever. I think maybe, so. I think so. And know. trying to make, you know, make her feel what he feels. You know, my wife has gone and stuff. And she just keeps asking questions psychiatric care for elena oh that's none of your business like oh shit now he's kind of rocked back like he came to be where there are other men yeah. where there are other men like i mean she's kind of doing she ends up doing to him what mendoza's kind of been doing to her and i think when she says i'm under a lot of pressure and i've reached a point where i'm not taking anyone's shit mm -hmm. like i think that was more as much about jonathan and her father and mendoza as it is about Fernando in this particular situation. Oh, absolutely. Just her whole fucking life. I mean, her whole yeah. life. I think this whole thing is fascinating. The way that she ends up choosing to go to the police after this to say that she feels like Fernando is harassing her, stalking her, what have you. What do you think of that move? I mean, I liked it. I liked her standing up. This is what I was saying at the beginning of the episode where Mendoza keeps putting her back on her heels, but we've seen Grace lean forward and take it to people. This was this was one of the things I was thinking about when she comes back at Fernando here and really gives it to him. I mean, really so is that because it's been on my mind. Has Elena fucked other guys? You know, has has she done X, Y, and Z? Don't know. We also don't know what Fernando said to get released from police custody so so fast. I like the fact that she's had enough. I don't think it was particularly smart, maybe, again, especially without a lawyer, to, to go there. Like, what did she really think Mendoza and O'Rourke were going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, here's the file. Here's why we let Fernando Well, and off. that's a like, curiosity, because honestly, that's when I believe it's O'Rourke says, 
oh, so you're here to file a complaint. Like you're here to fill out paperwork, right? That's right. that. And she's like, mm. <laughs> she's really not. Right. So what is she doing? I think she's feeling her oats a little bit after successfully establishing in her own mind. Remember, and we haven't talked about this yet, but we have a couple more gracisms, right? Come on, a couple of more grace grace-tinged memories or recollections or imaginings in this episode. We see her earlier when she's uh, about to talk to Stuart, I think it is. She has that vision of Jonathan talking to one of his cancer patients and being the loving doctor. And again, it's this idea of, is that Jonathan who Jonathan really was? Or is that Jonathan who Grace thinks he was and wanted him to be? That, clearly, that memory could not have been within the last three months, four or five months, because Jonathan hasn't been working as a cancer doctor. So where is that idea coming from of Jonathan sitting with this patient that he lied about going to see? It's her making it up. And just the kind of the same way she goes and she has this vision. She puts the, the idea out into the world. How many other guys was Elena fucking? You know, maybe you're the one who did it. And then we see her thinking about Fernando standing at the door of the studio while Jonathan and Elena fuck inside. And we can hear Fernando hearing their moans, their sex moans. And then she even flashes to Jonathan moving again in the same way that he took her from behind. We see now she has put Elena in that position and he's grabbing her breast and they're, they're very into it and it's extremely intimate and she's moaning and he's moaning and Fernando's outside watching. She concocts the entire murder scenario where Fernando is the one who did it. But it, she has to have been making it up because if that's a memory, she's standing next to Fernando on the staircase outside the art studio while her husband and Elena fuck. No, she's making that. She's concocting this theory in her head. This powerful mind is gone to work. And now she's not leaning back on her heels. She's leaning forward. And I think that's why she goes to the police department. She has made up a very credible story in her head that Fernando obviously has to be a suspect. What did he say to you to make him not a suspect? No, I don't think she really went there to file a complaint. I think she's using that as leverage, you know, Sylvia with her leverage as leverage. She thinks she has leverage now with this incident where he stalked her and trapped her, threatened her. I mean, he does threaten her. He says, be very careful, Dr. Yeah. Frazier, right? That's the last thing Fernando says before he walks away. That's a threat. That's a threat to me. But they're not having it because they've got this giant trump card to play for her. Now she asks for that, though. She says, do you have camera footage? She pushes. She asked for video surveillance from the building, from their apartment building and from the studio building. She's not asking about street camera footage. She does not ask for that. She actually says, this is New York City. Don't you have footage on the street? I'm wondering if she's trying to suss out what they have. Maybe. Uh, were you surprised that they showed it to her? Were you surprised that they showed it to her that he had, Mendoza had the cat that ate the canariest grin on his face? When he was like, ah, yeah, we're going to do this. This is where we're at. You want to see the footage? Thinking that she must know what they have. This is Grace where I doubt her mental faculties here. I feel like she acts kind of surprised that this is here. What are you doing at 103rd Street in the middle of the night on the night that Elena's murdered, Grace? You're not out for a walk. It's not a coincidence when you say you don't even you didn't even know where she lived. You know, when the final line is exactly how well did you know Elena Alves? That's the final line of the episode. Yeah, how well did you know Elena Alves? Because I think I'm pretty right. I feel like I'm starting to be really right on my theories that her and Jonathan, Elena, maybe Fernando, but her certainly, her, Jonathan, Elena, I think they had like a weird little thing going on. I think 
they did spend time together. That's what I think coming out of this episode. I do think that there's definitely more layers to this. It's not just a straightforward affair. There's something more there. I wonder really what Fernando wanted to say to Grace and what that conversation was going to go for, because I just think that there is other layers, whether Grace and Elena had been together and he saw that. Who knows? You know, I I don't know all the different parts, but there just seems like there's so much more here. So much more here. And, and, and this is a great middle episode of a season because for as many questions as it may have answered and we got like some forward movement, we're into the criminal trial now, it's starting up. I feel like so many more questions were asked, uh, so many more layers of the onion got peeled back. And now we're like, oh, shit, what's that mm-hmm. thing? And what's that thing over there? And what does that mean? As we wrap up the episode, give me two questions or three questions that you have burning coming out of this episode that you want to know more about. Okay, so I have two really important ones. One is is if Jonathan is trying to say that his entire sitch was all basically on accident here, like he left her, he went to a bar, he came back, right? Since we've pretty much figured out from Stuart that the Cleveland conference wasn't real, why was there already this cover story going on and an excuse to be gone? What was any of that? If the conference wasn't real and he didn't intend to go there to do anything, why do you need this time to have had this alibi? with at least your wife. It definitely speaks towards premeditation to leave the next morning and be gone for several days. But he did not, but he goes to see her the night of where he has to concoct a story of the patient of Shelby McGibbons being in trouble. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Let's say you said your conference is going to be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that means if you're using it as a cover story for murder, you're planning on killing her sometime Friday and being away, being in Cleveland, mm-hmm. right? Why make that story if you are planning on confronting her Thursday night and murdering her and then still going home? It's not like it's not like he was saying, I'm flying out Thursday night. That seems the better story if you're going to kill her Thursday well, night. And especially odd, too. I, I mean, this is just Liar 101. Pick an event that's real. Pick something that's real. That right. once, I mean, the second someone goes to look at your alibi, the Cleveland conference wasn't real. So that makes me think it was just a lie to tell a wife. It wasn't a lie to cover a murder. It was a lie to tell a wife about where you were who doesn't really ever check up even on what hotel you're at. Maybe he was just planning on spending the weekend with Elena. Maybe. Uh, or other women. I don't know. But it, Sylvia? What was Sylvia doing uh, that weekend? Maybe. I don't know. But it, it, definitely that part. Okay, so that sticks out to me. The second question that I want to throw out there is the one that that really is is not going to be answered. I don't think it's just one as the audience we have to answer. And that was the entire conversation happening between Mendoza and Franklin and his I'm with the NYPD. I'm sure you are, my boy. That portion, that definition of justice, is there more than one? And when Franklin's like, if you'd like to know what mine is, get a warrant. Fucking amazing entire exchange. But also, audience, is there more than one definition of justice? If Franklin's saying this talk, is he the doler out of justice? I think that's a good question. I think, okay, so mine relate, my first one I'm going to say relates to Franklin also. I think Franklin knowing where the Alves has lived, I think Franklin giving the $500,000 to Jonathan, or at least saying he gave Jonathan $500,000, Franklin is very much involved in whatever happened to Elena the baby, Fernando, and Jonathan. All of our core players, other than Grace and Henry, I think they are way out in the cold, like, knowledge-wise. 
I think Franklin, Jonathan, Elena, the baby, and Fernando to some extent are all involved in something. I don't know what it is. That's what I want to know. I want. I think Franklin has a giant part in the story because every good lie is has grains of truth in it. So I think there was five hundred thousand dollars involved. I think that money somehow passed through Jonathan. I don't think for one second Franklin believed it was coverage for money problems that that Jonathan and Grace were having. I think Franklin very much knows it went towards the Alvises to some extent. I think that's how Franklin comes to know where the Alvises live and why he can show up there. I feel like there is some baby buying situation going on here or it was settlement money. It was part of the settlement money from the hospital that made it go away. But Franklin plays a giant part in this story. I want to know what it is. Two, I mean, you covered pretty good ones. I want to know what Grace really did. I no longer have faith in Grace's memory or Grace's stated recollections. I think she has established that she is a un- an unreliable narrator sufficiently. I feel like her acting like it was a coincidence that she was on 103rd Street, right around the corner, right at the time of the murder, on the night of the murder, just out for a walk in her gala clothes. We saw her. We saw her in bed. We saw her in bed thinking about Jonathan being at work, being a doctor. We saw that. So there's a whole time chunk at the from the end of the gala to when we saw her in bed waiting for Jonathan to get home, where she was out wandering Harlem while Elena's being murdered. What does Grace know? What did Grace do? What is the truth with Grace? Because I don't think we can rely on her in any way, shape, or form in her memory. I agree with that fully. And I don't even know if we're calling them memories or imaginations or visions or hallucinations or what are they? I don't even know that she knows what they are. I don't think so either. I think she's just trying to make square pegs fit in round holes. And and her mind, again, this is, she's got this powerful mind. Uh, her Interesting, we didn't see her with any therapy patients uh, this episode. This was the first episode where we didn't see her working. And at the same time, she is still working, though, right? She's coming up with the hero worship theory. She's coming up with the, res- the you know, the rescue uh, r- uh, romance rescue theory. She She's trying to fit Elena into a psychological profile as if Elena was a patient. Maybe Elena was a patient. I am completely Maybe. willing to think that. Maybe when she's asking Fernando, did was she getting psychological thera- uh, psychological help or, or, or therapeutic help? Uh, maybe she's asking that because she knows the answer. Or maybe she doesn't currently remember the answer, but she does know the answer. That's what I'm saying. She is an unreliable narrator, and I don't even know that she knows what is true and what is a lie. I think that is the, the, a testament to the power of her mind and also the, the breaking down that it's kind of going through. This has been a fascinating episode, and I can't even believe that there's there's only three left, and also there's three left, and so there's like a ton that still can come out, because I, I feel like so much came out up to this point that have been interesting portions. Like, we're not spending a whole lot of time hanging out, talking about the trial. We're not spending a lot of time, but we are trying to, like figure out what, how is Grace related to these other people, and how, like, how does Sylvia fold in? I, I'm still remaining on the we, we always should say at the end of these of these episodes. So who do you think did it? I'm remaining that this is layered. I feel like there could have been someone who got her in the right place at the right time. Somebody who was paid to do X, Y, Z, something. There's layers upon layers upon layers. I think multiple people had the hands in her death. 
whether or not they actually swung the hammer. Going off of that, I, I, I think back to the name of the show, The Undoing, which is also the name of the first episode. I feel like The Undoing is, is a multi-layer reference also. I think it's the undoing of their perfect lives, their, their seemingly perfect lives, and this idea that money doesn't buy you happiness, that everyone's got problems. And just because you're rich doesn't mean you're above base things like infidelity and and not that murder is base, but it's not a class thing at the end of the day. And so I think it's an undoing of their perfect lives or their seemingly perfect lives. But I think it's an undoing though of Grace and her and her and her world, her literal world, not just the fancy apartment, not just the husband and the son and the father. I think it's like an undoing of her mind. I think that's what we're witnessing here. So it's interesting. It's an, it, it's an interesting thing to think about what does the undoing actually reference or refer to. And what is justice? What is justice at the end of the day here? It's biting off a finger in a courtyard, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a jail Yikes. yard. Yikes. Well, this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to The Undoing Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us five stars. It makes Apple like us. We don't want to have to bite their finger off. Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast is a Pod Clubhouse original production, recorded, produced, and edited at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information on Pod Clubhouse, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com or on social media at Pod Clubhouse.